Welcome to the Illinois Soy Podcast. Enjoy. I'm speaking with Dr. Rachel Cook. Rachel is currently at North Carolina State University as an assistant professor of silviculture and co-director of Forest Productivity Cooperative. Rachel Cook was formerly of SIU as the assistant professor of soil fertility. Now, Rachel, today we want to focus mainly on conservation tillage practices. So why don't we start out by just describing the main conservation tillage practices and sort of what they are. There's a variety of conservation tillage practices. Typically, we call it a conservation tillage practice if there's greater than 30% residue cover. So that means you look out on the the ground after tillage, if 30% of it is covered in some sort of residue like corn stalks, um, then it's considered a conservation tillage practice. So there's a lot of different names that can be given to different kinds. Reduced tillage is kind of a generic term just in terms of something less than, you know, complete uh, turnover. There's ridge tillage, there's mulch tillage, there's chisel tillage. There's a lot of different kinds of tillage that can be considered conservation tillage so long as it's sort of less than complete bare ground. So there's a lot of things that can be considered conservation tillage. Sort of the ultimate conservation tillage, of course, is no-till, which is where the only disturbance that the soil gets is with the planter. So there's just the planting slot, and that's basically all. Are there certain types of soil environments that work better with these different types of conservation practices? Sure, yeah. Typically, see no-till more in southern Illinois where we have more erodible ground. So if you have longer slopes, steeper slopes, you will get more erosion, of course, because the water is moving faster over the top of the soil and it'll take more soil particles with it. That's not to say that no-till doesn't work on flat ground. Uh, So there's a long-term 45-year study at Belleville, Illinois, um, at the Belleville Research Center, that has tested conservation tillage practices such as chisel till um, or alternate tillage, like where you might take um, and till one out of every three years and do no-till for two years. We found up there that no-till does just as well as any other tillage. So I think some people are sometimes under the impression that no-till doesn't work as well uh, in flat or you know less well-drained soils. Um, and our long-term study basically says, no, it does perfectly fine. Well, that brings us easily to the next question I have for you, and that's when you're changing into these conservation tillage practices, whether it be reduced tillage or all the way up to no-till, what are sort of the short-term and long-term effects that you can see in the field itself? Differences in drainage, different sorts of weeds coming up, different nutrient needs. Uh, Let's just start with the short-term differences. Sure. Yeah, I think as people are are changing to no-till, there's sometimes a little bit of a learning curve in terms of weed management or um, for some folks getting just the planter set differently because now you have more residue to cut through and to deal with. So I think, you know, there's typically a learning curve in terms of making sure you get good seed soil contact when you're planting. Uh, And then also you have to think a little bit more about uh, your herbicide regime. And there is sort of a growing concern in terms of herbicide-resistant weeds and how to better combat, you know, some of these weeds that are now 
Roundup ready, basically. And so some people are sort of going back towards tillage now because of that. And so there's sort of a trade-off there in terms of, you know, the way you're going to manage your, your weeds. Personally, I think there's also just a culture of people like to till because you feel like you're doing something. I think there's sort of an aesthetic that a lot of people have in terms of it. They want a nice, clean field, um, <laughs> and they see that as a, you know, as a beautiful thing. Um, whereas as a soil scientist, you know, I look at a bare field and, you know, I want to see it covered. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to see any soil exposed because when soil is exposed, it's possible for it to erode either by wind erosion or um, water erosion. So, so that's a trade-off. We've covered the short-term things that you can see right away when you start moving to conservation tillage. What are some of the long-term things that you might start noticing? For instance, in your 45-year trial there at Belleville, were there some interesting things that started cropping up? There's one thing a lot of people worry about in terms of going to no-till, and um, people often worry about stratification of nutrients. And if you broadcast your fertilizer, does it all concentrate in the, in the top? And the answer is uh, yes, it does concentrate more in the top in no-till. You're not turning it you know, into, the, into the soil, but we've studied it very thoroughly, and it makes no difference on yield if it is stratified. So I've heard quite a few people um, voice a concern about stratification of nutrients, and, and this study basically shows don't worry about it. It's not a problem. The plants will find the nutrients. (laughs) They're very good at finding nutrients, uh, whether they're in the top two inches or distributed throughout the six-inch profile. Organic matter is something that um, gets a lot of attention uh, because organic matter is very good for all of your soil properties, for people call it soil health or soil quality. But organic matter is very helpful for infiltration, it stores nutrients, it improves your, you know, aggregation. Um, So there's a million things that that organic matter is good for. And no-till, based on our 45-year study, doing no-till and adding your typical MPK nutrients is the only way you're going to increase your organic matter. So even if you till once every three years, you're going to disturb that organic matter and it's going to be degraded. But it takes a while for the organic matter to build up. So, you know, don't expect that you're going to get a 3% increase in organic matter, you know, in the first five years. It's going to take many, many years for that organic matter to increase. Is there ever a point when you're practicing no-till or certain conservation practices that you would want to till and reincorporate the built-up organic matter or try to break up those layers where the stratification of nutrients has taken place? The only time you really need to worry about, like, breaking up that residue cover is if you're in, you know, northern Minnesota or, like, northern Iowa where it's very cold and they really need the soil to be warmed up. So in more northern climates, you can get a positive effect of tillage just because they're so cold and you know, I heard one guy say that farms in northernmost Iowa that they had issues with slugs in uh, in no-till systems because it's just it's so much colder up there. You know, in our part of the world, there really isn't a whole lot of incentive to need to break that up. So I think, you know, there's maybe some unnecessary concern about, you know, really needing to break up that residue. 
While these changes are all happening on the field, ideally, farmers would probably like to see some sort of change happening in their wallet. Can you go over some of the financial aspects of moving to a conservation tillage program? Sure. Um, so we recently did a economic analysis of this 45-year study because we had really great records of yield and uh, what herbicides had been applied, you know, what tillage had been done, basically everything that had happened on that site. And so we had everything from conventional tillage or mulberd plow, which is a turning plow, it turns everything over, all the way to no-till. And so we basically ran the numbers on the profits in uh, the first 20 years of continuous corn and the the second sort of 20 plus years of uh, corn soybean. What was really interesting is is we sort of expected that we would see, you know, a big economic difference between some of these tillage practices. And it turns out that, you know, over the years, herbicide cost and tillage cost sort of canceled each other out. And so when you do, uh, say, for the corn soybean rotation for the last since 1991 is when they started planting soybeans. So we added up all the numbers and, and put it into $2014, so it was comparing apples to apples. Pretty much all the tillage systems are the same. So long as you put on your MPK fertilizer, basically our sort of you know funny tagline is that tillage is recreational. Like if you like to till, if that's how you like to spend your time, you can do that. It's going to hurt your organic matter, but it's that comes out basically equivalent to no-till in this particular system. So it really is kind of up to the farmer in terms of what do they prefer to do. You know, again, as a soil scientist, I would like to advocate that protect your soils and, and keep your residue cover on and prevent erosion. In terms of sort of adding up the cost of soil loss, that, that soil loss cost is going to be more pronounced in more southern Illinois where you are losing more soils due to erosion. But We also did sort of a sensitivity analysis, which is basically asking the question, well, okay, if uh, herbicide had been more expensive or if tillage had been more expensive, you know, in terms of machinery, what would it take basically for conventional tillage to to win, you know, in terms of profit versus no-till to win? Basically, what we found is that costs had to be pretty dramatically different from today's costs for there to be a difference in tillage practices. Like herbicide cost would have had to have been, um, I think what we found was over 800% higher for uh, no-till to lose, to become less profitable. So so it's pretty big differences to, to make one or the other um, more or less profitable than the other. Now, what do you think is the most difficult aspect of transitioning to conservation tillage practices? Is it transitioning your management practices, a financial cost? What what do you see as the most difficult hurdle? I think, honestly, it's a cultural hurdle, if anything. Um, it's actually less equipment to take care of. Most people that I think have switched to no-till sort of scratch their heads as to why, you know, other people want to have to keep so much equipment around. I think it's honestly just a, for a large part, um, it's what people are used to and it's what they know and they know it works. And it's it's often in, hard to switch to a different uh, lifestyle practice almost. You know, and people that 
that I think try it, and once they once they usually try it and sort of get into it, then they're sort of converted, you know. And so I think maybe getting a handle on a more involved herbicide regime might be a challenge for some. But you know, a lot of that's custom applied now too. So I think most people are getting advice already from uh, consultants or their dealer, whoever, on on some of these practices. So, you know, the information is out there. It's readily available if people want to switch to no-till. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, finding somebody who's already doing it and sort of asking. And and I think the transition is probably easier than most people think it might be. The jury is still out on this, but if you had a really bad infestation of um, herbicide-resistant weeds, if you had, uh, you know, mare's tail or, you know, heaven forbid when Palmer gets here, that might be a situation where you might have to um, do some tillage just to get things sort of under control. But, you know, even then, the we aren't totally sure if that's a great idea because then you're burying some of these seeds and then they'll be, every time you go until, you're going to crop some back up again. So I think there's still some controversy in terms of even if that's a good idea or not to, you know, to really till some of these seeds down deep and then just have this sort of continuous supply of seeds coming up to the surface every time you go to till. So so there's still some work being done on that um, in terms of what we should be doing with some of these herbicide-resistant weeds. But that might be the, the one situation where I think it might be somewhat justified. I'm open. If anybody ever wants to contact me, I have moved institutions, but I'm happy to answer questions, and I still have some some papers coming out of the long-term studies. So, um, you know, I I leave myself open um, if people still want to contact me. I think one thing that folks have to be careful of is there's a lot of information, you know, out on the Internet that is sometimes put out by, you know, people that have a, a certain interest in, you know, selling products. But I always try to steer people towards going to um, extension uh, websites. So, and even if it's not Illinois extension, you know, Minnesota has great extension as well. You know, other state, other surrounding states, sort of depending on, you know, what what's closer to your part of Illinois. There's also other good resources in, on in other extension uh, websites as well. We've recently published a paper in Agronomy Journal, and it's actually um, open access, so you don't have to pay just to see the journal article. Um, we'll have this economics one coming out here pretty soon. So, and again, people are welcome to contact me directly if, if they have, you know, more in-depth questions. Again, that was Dr. Rachel Cook. This podcast was brought to you by the Illinois Soybean Checkoff. For more useful information about growing soybeans, visit illsoyadvisor.com. That's ilsoyadvisor.com.